The groundhog saw his shadow, which means six more weeks of winter. But of course, it always is six more weeks of winter in Northeast Ohio. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. Before we begin, I want to say a thank you, a personal thank you to the students at Baldwin-Wallace University who took time out yesterday to talk to me about civil discourse and their professors, Lauren Copeland and Tom Sutton. It was a great way to spend a morning talking to engaged, smart students about their thoughts of the state of things in America today. Thank you very much. Let's begin. Former Ohio Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor was clear in 2022 that Ohio's system for drawing legislative and congressional maps is busted. And she said she would use her retirement to change that. On Wednesday, she gave us a clue as to how. Laura, what's she going to do? There is an, a, a constitutional amendment on the way, aiming for November of 2024. So this came up when O'Connor spoke to a packed audience of the Columbus Metropolitan Club on Wednesday. And she said, now that I'm retired, I can be involved in efforts to maybe pass another constitutional amendment. And this time, the constitutional amendment depoliticizes the redistricting commission. She's talking about not putting any elected officials on a commission. And Maureen O'Connor is the only reason our gerrymandered maps in Ohio aren't worse. She wants to get all the politics out of the process so that one party can't thwart the voters will like they did over and over in the last year. And, you know, she was the only Republican who stood up against the Republican dominated commission and and I, I think at least a half a dozen times rejected their map saying they're unconstitutional. And this is where I'd like to point out, we still have unconstitutional maps. They've never been approved, and we voted using them in November. And do you see anything happening to change that? Yeah, they're going to approve them now because they've got all Republicans on the the Supreme Court, and they're going to vote by politics, not by truth and facts. Look, she's a force of nature. Throughout her career, she has gotten things done. And if you've ever spent time talking with her, you get the idea that if she sets her mind to something— She's going to make it happen. What's interesting is the the far right Republicans now funded by Gibbons, the failed mm -hmm. Senate candidate, want to make it harder to change the Constitution. And they didn't get to their deadline. Right. So we'll be talking about that. But for 2024, they could. They, the the mm -hmm. Republicans in the legislature could be working to make it harder for O'Connor to create fair maps. How about that for a turn of events? I want, I wondered the exact same thing that, you know, obviously we've talked about abortion being a major driver about changing the, making it harder to pass constitutional amendments, but this has got to be weighing on their mind as well. Uh, Cause obviously November, 2024, they have some time. She said she's spending time on this with a group of people and they're talking about it various, very seriously, networking, and they've got to get cracking. But yeah, and she's a former Summit County prosecutor. She was the a lieutenant governor. She has name recognition. I think people really respect her. So if she puts her name on this, I, I would assume it will get to the ballot. I think just about everybody in Ohio, except the Republicans in the legislature, will want to do this. Everybody mm -hmm. wants fairness. And it's it's still kind of sinful what all of those Republicans on the redistricting commission did. They refused to do their jobs. They violated the constitution of Ohio and then voters all reelected them anyway. Well, I think that the idea you hear the word redistricting and it sounds wonky, but I've said it on this podcast before. If you care about the issues in front of the state legislature, like 
you know, gun rights or abortion or whatever it is they're passing, it all matters on the balance of power in the state house. And that is all determined by the districts. And Maureen O'Connor said there are states that do redistricting without politics involved. She named Arizona, Iowa, Michigan, Colorado, California. I think we need to be looking seriously at those states and seeing how it works. I mean, we have but, looked at those, but other but, people. But how how pathetic is it that we have to protect the process from the elected leaders? The elected right. leaders are supposed to represent the best interests of Ohioans, and they're such bums that we have to protect the system. I know, but from we're going to talk meddling. later on this podcast about dark money, right? So, <laughs> no, it's just it's it's really. It, I, I think we're so numb to the dysfunction that we accept it, but this is ridiculous. The people we elect are working against the, the best interests of Ohioans. Yeah, it's party over people and power over people. And the more you know, the angrier you get. Well, go, Maureen O'Connor, go. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I can't count how many times we talked on this podcast about how Cuyahoga County's health department bollocks that's handling the pandemic, whether it was transparency or, or whatever. They just never really seemed to get it going. Layla, they're doing it again, even at the end of the pandemic. What's the issue this yeah, time? Once again, the Cuyahoga County Board of Health is, is doing it wrong. <laughs> for folks who test positive for COVID, they're still sending them isolation orders through the snail mail. And that means that often, and I'm going to go on a limb and say it's probably more than often, it's probably always, the isolation orders are arriving after the person's five days of isolation have ended. The Board of Health, this is crazy, spent nearly $22,000 on these letters just in a three-month span from October through December. Other boards of health have said they no longer rely exclusively on snail mail for these notifications because of exactly this problem. The letters aren't arriving in time to serve any purpose. Most other boards of health in our area have moved to either calling the person or, or emailing them. And if a person requests a letter or can't be reached through email or on the phone, they'll get a letter in the mail. Even the city of Cleveland's health department said they've abandoned this practice of sending notice in the mail. They, they all realize the futility of it, and and the wasted resources. So Cuyahoga County Board of Health, they acknowledge that snail mail is not the most efficient way of delivering the information, but they insist that it's the most secure because they say you can't send HIPAA-protected medical information through email. But to that, I say, uh, how, how do you think we all received our lab results from the pharmacy or the testing lab, right? Right. And look, the, the the dumb thing about this is, do you really need to notify anybody anymore? We're three years right. into the pandemic. We all get it. If you get COVID, you, you quarantine until you're clear. I just, I don't understand the need for the notice anymore. In the beginning, you definitely wanted to get information to people. There was not much information out there. But that you would have thought they'd been reassessing this all along. And come on, we have written story after story about the problems the post office has. They can't right. hire enough people to deliver the mail. I, I learned um, from a Sun Press story last week that there's some postal routes in Cleveland Heights where people go weeks without getting their mail. So what is the point? Just it, it's over and over and over again. It seems like there are a bunch of unthinking automatons that never really review what they're exactly. doing. Exactly. I mean, so I personal, I have personal experience with this problem, which kind of gave rise to this, this story idea. I, m m I tested positive for COVID on December 20th. My isolation order was dated December 27th 
which was already <laughs> after my isolation period would have would have been ending, but I didn't even receive the letter until January 3rd. That was two weeks after I tested positive. And by then, I was already on to another respiratory illness. <laughs> so, I mean, the letter literally served zero purpose. And this useless process is costing the Board of Health tens of thousands of dollars a year, plus the manpower it takes to stuff these envelopes. I think the, the best and- way to handle, if, if they really feel, if we feel still as a, as a, a society that we, we still need to be told to isolate for five days, just tack it on as a sentence when people get their their lab you know results just throw it on there this means you should stay you know stay away from other people for 5 days that's it well, I, and i do want to salute you for being an alert journalist when it happened to you you came in and you said hey i got a good story here and it became the story we published and it's on cleveland.com you are listening to today in ohio We said we'd get to this. One Republican strategy for blocking an abortion constitutional amendment from the ballot in Ohio this November dropped off the list of possibilities this week. Lisa, why was that? Well, there was a February 1st deadline, so yesterday, to place it on the May ballot. So that deadline is passed. Their next chance is the November election, and the, the filing deadline for that would be August 10th. So they have, you know, most of the year to get through that. So, but what this does, though, now that House Joint Resolution 6 is kind of in limbo, this paves the way for abortion rights people and others to get amendments on the November ballot with the current 50 percent plus one threshold. So attempts to pass House Joint Resolution 6 in the lame duck session failed. Uh, The new House Speaker, Jason Stevens, didn't schedule it for last month, but Stevens says it's not dead yet. He says they will review this by uh, with a House committee. He said that protecting our Constitution is very important no matter which side of the aisle we're on, but this does open a window for two competing abortion rights ballot measures, one from a physician's group and one from another advocacy group. But neither group has said whether they're aiming for this November or not. Don't you just love the words that they try to use to curry favor? Protecting the Constitution? It's not protecting the Constitution if voters want to do something with the Constitution. The voters are in charge. It's amazing the way they're phrasing this nonsense. It's like Gibbons saying he wants to protect women's sports when it's really he's talking about a trans ban. This is one where I do think there are legislators that are afraid of it. Because this is anti-democratic. You are removing Mm -hmm. power from the voters. And they say, well, we're going to let the voters decide. I think the voters will slam dunk this and kill it because everybody but these far right Republicans have lined up against it. But the idea they're calling this protect the Constitution when it's really sticking a shiv to the voters. But to give him credit, though, Stevens didn't allow it to pass through lame duck. He didn't, you know, Derek Marin, the the would-be House Speaker, wanted to ram this through as soon as the legislature opened in January. That didn't happen because he wasn't elected. So um, I'm giving Stevens a little bit of credit here. He seems to be pulling the reins back a little bit. We'll have to see how this plays out. Yeah, I think he's a smart guy, and I think he recognizes that if they put their full faith and credit behind this, it could hurt them credibly. I mean, the, the number of groups that lined up against this was both right and left. It's, it's don't mess with the people's right to change the Constitution. That, that's been there for, what, 80 or 90 years. So, But it's protecting the Constitution. It's such a nonsense word. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. The corruption of trial of ousted House Speaker Larry Householder is officially a slog. But little by little, details have been emerging. Laura, what did we learn Wednesday? There was a classic primer on the dirty games of dark money and pay to play in the Ohio legislature given by an FBI agent who I believe is on his fourth day today on the stand. So prosecutors showed jurors this attack ad flyer against a candidate named Beth Alice. And the ad said it was paid for because it has has to say at the bottom in the tiny little letters, right, by the Growth and Opportunity Pack, which tells you nothing. So federal prosecutors showed jurors how the money behind the ad actually started with First Energy. It flowed from there to Generation Now. That's the nonprofit that could raise unlimited sums without disclosing the donors because that's dark money. And here's where it gets really dark. So the mailer was sent out to oppose Ellis and bolster her opponent, Shane Wilkin. He went on to win the race. And then when Wilkin took office, he sponsored House Bill 6. But I mean... <laughs> Very I, I, clear, right? I just wonder how closely the jury can follow this, which is I'm sure householder strategy is let's gum it up as much as possible, make it right. confusing. So it's really on the prosecutors to make this understandable, to draw a clear line from the money's origin to the pockets of the people who got it. And it's a tough, tough task. It is. But when you stop to think about it and and you get the dots connected for you, it's disgusting. I mean, some of the ads from another First Energy funded organization targeted this guy named Kevin Black. He was Householder's opponent in a primary election. And one radio ad, which was played in full for the jury, accused Black of taking dirty money and being bankrolled by dark money special interests. I mean, hello, pot. It's just (laughs) so, so blatant. And it's it's really gross how these guys operated on pay to play. And I'm sure we're going to hear this over and over again. So this isn't anything about first energy, but they played tapes of householder discussing, you know, conversations with Neil Clark, who um, is, was charged, but it you know has died. So it's not part of this, but they could be dis- heard discussing an internet cable bill that was circulating in the legislature. And householder was saying he was getting a really hard time getting money from cable cable providers. He said, we haven't gotten anything from cable with the idea like they wouldn't pass a cable bill unless they got money from cable. And I would like to reiterate here, just like we talked about at the top of the podcast, that elected officials are supposed to represent Ohio citizens, not the people giving them money. I hope the prosecutor prosecution is partly performance. It's partly drama. And I hope the prosecutor made sure to emphasize that because they're not talking about whether we need a cable bill. He's like, wait, wait, they didn't give us any money, right? No, no, we're done with them. They got to give us money or we're not going to think about what they want. And that tells you everything about how government works in Ohio. Uh, Jake Zuckerman, who's covering this for us, said from the beginning, he believes this is going to be the clearest window we can get on how Ohio government operates. And it's all backslapping and money trading and very little that's about what's best for Ohio. Right. It's how can I be elected? How can I stay elected? And how can I benefit myself? Also, my political party. But yeah, nowhere in these conversations are we hearing, what is best for the people of Ohio? How can we best serve them? I mean, at least... Maybe the defense is going to play that conversation, but I don't know. I doubt they were recording it. Yeah, we'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Is Cuyahoga County Councilman Marty Sweeney angling to become council president? Last week, he openly criticized the sitting president for refusing to allow Sweeney to introduce legislation. This week, he's pushing for a series of council reforms that normally might come from the council president. Layla, what's he proposing and what's really going on? It definitely feels like there's a, a power struggle unfolding at county council recently. This this latest moment of tension arose at a meeting where Sweeney presented a list of recommendations for improving the operations of council and, and improving council's relationship with their community. Sweeney presented these ideas in his capacity as the chair of council's operations, intergovernmental relations, and public transportation committee. His his three main recommendations included improving council's visibility and brand in the community, conducting a deep dive on how the county charter and council's role within it is, is working after 12 years, and having council set clear legislative priorities each year. And the, the list included the suggestion of hiring a full-time communications specialist to help promote more of council's work and elevate its profile in the community to help residents better understand what council actually does. And Sweeney called for council to consider spending a quarter of a million dollars to hire a brand consultant to identify better ways to reach the community. The other members of the group were more interested in hiring someone to do battle with us <laughs> for, the, for what they said <laughs> were you know the constant barrage of attacks on them. But Sweeney also suggested hiring a consultant to figure out how well this newer form of council government is performing compared to the old county commissioner form of government. And the members didn't like that idea very much because they say they already have in-house methods of evaluating that, but they would support, you know, greater oversight of like the jail and metro health and things like that. Caitlin Durbin included the whole list of Sweeney's recommendations in her story on Cleveland.com, but we were discussing this in the newsroom yesterday. Conspicuously, Sweeney's list includes the suggestion of limiting the council president and vice president's terms to four consecutive years to prevent stagnancy. Does that suggest he's potentially vying for Purnell Jones's seat? I don't know. Look, look, Marty Sweeney is very savvy at maneuvering. He was city <laughs> council president in Cleveland for probably longer than anybody in recent history, maybe George Forbes was longer. So, so if he wants to be council president for the county, he knows how to do it. He knows how to build alliances. And one of the things you do is you undermine who's there, which this seems to be doing. Uh, it's just interesting. It's it's a it's a drama that's playing out. I think we said it last week. Pernell Jones made a mistake by blocking him from introducing that legislation. This is very, very different. I do want to point out, Sonny Simon made an attack on us. And hey, Sonny Simon, the readers believe us. They know that you created slush funds. They know you squandered money on the medical mart. They know you haven't done what you need to do on the jail. That's all true, even though you want to label it falsehoods. And no amount of public relations can change the facts. Yeah, and and I would probably... I think spending a quarter of a million dollars on someone to try to f- fight the truth in in the media is a bad look <laughs> with taxpayer yeah, dollars. It is. Right. <laughs> and and we'll keep pointing it out. So you're it's not like that message will be out there alone. There's slush funds. You squandered the money. There's no way around it. And it's today in Ohio. J.D. Vance is on record saying he does not care about Ukraine despite the Russian invasion. But now that he's a U.S. senator from Ohio, he's showing he does care. 
And it's not because he has sympathy for the people of Ukraine. Lisa, what's his latest? Yeah, our our newest senator was on a Wednesday podcast with Steve Bannon, who's a persistent Ukraine critic, who's also praised Vladimir Putin. But uh, when uh, Bannon asked Vance about letting Congress vote on a war powers resolution, Vance's reply was, well, it's something he plans to work on for the next few months. So a war powers resolution is... um, It means that the president would have to consult with Congress while either preparing for war or declaring war. So that would force the White House and the Biden administration to have a specific plan in this instance. Well, uh, Vance said, you know, if the Ukraine is as important as Biden says, why isn't Europe stepping up? Why are we footing most of the bill for their war against Russia? Where did the $27 billion in U.S. aid go? And Bannon has been pushing this war powers resolution. Um, and of course, it was on Bannon's podcast back in February 2022 when he was running for office, when Vance famously said he didn't care what happened in Ukraine. Um, Vance had further said that, you know, even those who were sympathetic to Ukraine's plight, like I am, don't think this is America's main concern. He says it's an expensive distraction from more pressing foreign policy issues. Look, we haven't declared war on Russia. We're assisting a nation that has been invaded by another power, something that really hadn't happened since World War II in Europe. Uh, Think about what's happening here. Donald Trump went large in the last day or so saying we should have peace in Ukraine right away, which means basically surrendering. He went on to say he still trusts Putin more than American intelligence agencies, which is ridiculous. He is siding with one of the worst dictators of the recent era against his own country, former president. Vance has endorsed Trump already for for the 2024 Mm. election, and now he's trying to block the assistance that so many people believe is necessary to push back against this invasion. This this is the appeasement principle. If if you give in to Russia doing this now, you're repeating what what happened in the world a century ago. It's it's amazing. It's an Ohio senator that is in favor of appeasement. Well, but there have been rumblings in the Republican ranks for months now. They've been kind of pushing back against Ukraine aid. So he's he's kind of joining that, you know, that that group. But but they do that because the, there's a Democratic administration that's funded it. They're, it's not right or wrong. They, they want issues where it's us versus them. And this they're 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 giving up on what's going on in Europe to try and create another polarizing divisive issue. I said at the top of the podcast that I talked to students at Baldwin Wallace about civil discourse and the polarization. This is an example of the polarization that they've grown up with. They have not seen people trying to do the right thing. They've just seen this horrible us versus them. And J.D. Vance has stepped right into it. Look, he replaced Bob, Rob Portman. Rob Portman was not like this. Yeah, he was actually on the uh, Ukraine, uh, not an ambassador, I can't think of the term, but he had close ties with Ukraine and actually, you know, worked and debated with them. So we lost a, a, a good statesman in place of this guy. I had Republicans write to me after Vance was elected saying, look, now that he's elected, now that he can distance himself from Trump, we think he's going to be a a stand up guy that does the right thing. And what he's shown is, is he is 100 percent a Trump acolyte. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is the Cleveland Museum of Art recognizing injustices to Native Americans? Laura Steve Witt wrote a 
thorough story about this that published this week. Right. So they're acknowledging it with a plaque. That's not the end of the story, but that's the basis of the idea. They acknowledge that we are all standing on native land. That's not enough to make this okay, obviously, but it's part of their work to be more encompassing and recognize the contributions of Native Americans. So the plaque goes on to say the museum occupies land in a region from which Native Americans were forcibly removed during colonial settlement and the westward expansion that follows. And this is a statement that a couple other institutions in University Circle have placed in prominent locations, and it's part of a movement across the country. There is some kind of pushback for some of this, that the idea is, okay, we acknowledged it. What else are you going to do about it, right? Does that just assuage everyone's guilt? But but the museum is doing more. But think about it. They put a sign up saying, this is on stolen land. Isn't the natural response, well, give it back? Yes. I mean, (laughs) absolutely. So we acknowledge we stole this from you, but we're not going to do anything about it because we don't have to. Nanana boo boo. I mean, that is not the message the art museum is going for here. And they, their work has been given kudos by members of the native native American community in Cleveland. So this is a product of the 2018 diversity equity and inclusion plan. And they want to embark on a new cultural partnership with this group of, of Northeast Ohioans. It's small. It's often overlooked. As Steve Litt writes, a lot of it has centered on the, the pushback over the name of the Cleveland Indians and, and, and chief Wahoo. But now that we are past that, this sounds like a, you know, something that we can talk about in the future. So the museum is expanding its collection of artwork by Native Americans. It wants to enhance educational programs and create new routes to professional careers in the art world for indigenous people, including fellowships and internships. So it's something. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. So we talk about this as a small part of Northeast Ohioans, right? So I guess the Native American population in Cleveland remained minuscule until after World War II. It grew after the federal government launched this urban relocation program in 1952, and the government terminated support to Native American reservations in the West. It offered to resettle families in eight U.S. cities, and Cleveland was one of them. And uh, there's a map on the museum's website now that shows how Native Americans from Ohio, a lot of Northwest Ohio, actually, they were forced into that trail of tears that, honestly, I, I probably haven't talked much about since history class okay check out steve Wood's story it's on cleveland.com you're listening to today in ohio let's talk about some health news how many americans eat fast food at least once a week and what's happening with life expectancy in the country these are big issues in cleveland where some neighborhoods have serious health news issues. So even though these are national stories, they apply here, Layla. Yeah. And this new national survey that was conducted by the Cleveland Clinic found that about 10% of Americans think fast food is the most heart-healthy diet. And almost half of Americans buy fast food at least once a week. The survey asked about people's heart-healthy habits and the most common barriers to heart-healthy lifestyles. And it really focused on diet and exercise. Among the study's kind of you know, really eye-opening results is the fact that parents, 14%, are twice as likely than non-parents at 7% to think that a fast food diet is the most heart-healthy. Yikes. 
Also, 71% of Americans believe that moderate exercise has a greater impact on losing weight than diet. Nearly 40% of Americans think low-fat and low-carb diets are good for the heart. Only 15% pick the Mediterranean diet, which is what the clinic recommends for lowering the risk of heart attack and stroke. The Mediterranean diet focuses on veggies and fruits and healthy fats and protein sources that are not dairy or red meat. Um, and then there are barriers to sourcing fresh, healthy foods that are based on the community you live in. About 20% of Black Americans say it's hard for them to access stores that sell healthy food compared to 15% of white Americans. You know, this takes us back to the discussion about the county health department where I said everybody knows what they're supposed to do when they get COVID. If that many people believe fast food is a heart-healthy diet, maybe they're misinformed about COVID as well and they do need some notification. The uh, Is there any connection between this and our dropping life expectancy? Well, I mean, it seems there would be. Uh, Gretchen Kudakroen um uh, reported that the pandemic has actually shaved more than two years off our life expectancy here. Um, she reports that um, the well, this is according to the final 2021 mortality data that was released at the end of 2022 from the National Center for Health Statistics. It, say, it says that men and women combined can expect to live an average of 76 and a half years. That's down from a peak of 78.9 years in 2014. And, um, you know, women on average live longer than men by nearly six years. Women have a life expectancy of 79.3 years compared to the 73.5 years of men. And, and that gap seems to be widening. In 2019, it was 76.3 for men and 81.4 for women. And the top three leading causes of death in 2021 were heart disease, which very much connects to what we were talking about regarding the misconceptions about fast food, and cancer and covid with deaths due to COVID increasing 18.8% uh, over 2020. So, yes. Yeah. I just want to point out, though, that if you look at any commercial for any fast food thing, they have dollar menus. If you're a poor single mom with five kids, you could probably feed your five kids for less than $10. Yeah, it's definitely affordable, but it, it does contribute to the... I mean, we've talked about food deserts and all of it. Um, and this I is a contributor. I think the shocking thing about this to me was that 10% of Americans view it as heart healthy or the, the most heart healthy way to eat. I think that is where we should be directing dollars like the $20,000 that the Board of Health used in three months to send useless letters to COVID patients. I mean, use that kind of money for better education around food choices. But Lisa and mentioned like commercials, and the message in commercials for fast food is often about how it's healthy. So if is you're it? constantly barraged by those, that. Oh, it's more about yeah, the affordability. But... If they're if they're advertising yeah. the dollar menu, we're talking about, you know. I was really surprised. I went to McDonald's with my dad and my sister and our kids on Sunday, and I was like, well, "Where's the salads?" And my sister's like. They haven't had salads for years. Right? And I was like, oh, so the, apparently they've dropped all – my guess is when COVID happened, right? But that they've dropped all pretense of having healthy things. I, I mean, you can get chicken or burgers or fries or ice cream. So I, I don't – I mean, the only lettuce is going to come anymore? on a bun. No more wow. salads. I was, I was floored. <laughs> wow. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're going long. One more. Lisa, who are the 2023 Rock Hall nominees who were announced Wednesday, and are any of them surprising? I don't know. There are some surprising to me. There are 14 names in all on the ballot. Eight of them are on the ballot for the first time. Two of them in their first year of eligibility. One of those who uh, you know got in her first year was Missy Elliott, the female rapper. I have a couple of her albums. I adore her. But if she's going to let in, they should let in Queen Latifah as well. Well, just saying. Also, uh, the first time on the ballot for George Michael, Cindy Lauper, Willie Nelson. I think that was a big surprise. Why hasn't he been on the ballot before? Also, Cheryl Crow and Warren Zevon. Uh, also, Joy Division and New Order. That's all their first time on the ballot. The White Stripes made it, and this is their first year of eligibility. You have to be in the business for 25 years to be um, accepted. So also on the list is A Tribe Called Quest, Rage Against the Machine, Kate Bush, Iron Maiden, The Spinners, way back from the 60s, and Soundgarden. So inductees are voted on by a thousand critics, journalists, artists, professionals, and historians and academics. Fans get to vote too, and the top five will be on a fans ballot. And the finalists and the location of the ceremony Ceremony will be announced in May. I was glad to see Warren Zevon finally getting on there. I'm not sure why he wasn't on there before. It's a it's a very interesting list. Gives lots of fodder for debate. Laura told me yesterday she had no idea who the spinners were, which just made wow. me feel ancient. <laughs> Also said, please give this question to Lisa because I am not cool enough to answer it. <laughs> and we did. And we did because you're cool. Aww. All right, Layla, anything about Groundhog's Day you want to bring up? <laughs> well, I found a lot about the... <laughs> we were debating this before the podcast. found a lot about where this tradition comes from. It apparently comes from this European Christian tradition called Candlemas Day that would hand out these candles to the people in town. And if it was sunny the day they got the candles, it meant there would be longer winter. And if it was cloudy, spring was on the way. And then over time, the tradition was adopted by Germans who adapted it to include a hedgehog for some reason. But then when the Germans brought it to Pennsylvania, when they settled there in 1800s, they picked a groundhog because they were easier to find in Pennsylvania than a hedgehog. (laughs) But I'm really disappointed to find that the actual prediction is based on zero science whatsoever these days. It's just like it was in the, the the old days of Candlemas. It is literally, if it's sunny, they say he sees a shadow. If it's cloudy, he doesn't. I find that to be super lame, but whatever. That's what, that's they what don't we do even every watch. year. They don't even watch to see if he's pointing his snout am, at his I am shadow? pretty sure that when they, when the, in Punxsutawney, the mayor pretends that the groundhog is whispering in his ear. I think that's what it is. Like he's like, everyone's watching the mayor as he's like, has the groundhog held up to his ear. I might be totally wrong about this, head. but I'm fairly certain based on my five minutes of research during this podcast <laughs> that that is it. <laughs> And then he announces, he saw his shadow or didn't. And that's it. So really, the mayor just decides. Well, he he looks at the sky as sunny or cloudy. But I wonder how to... I'm just so disappointed. I thought for sure there was at least like, you know, farmer's almanac level of data that went into this decision. But... It is literally just well, about... The groundhog doesn't read the farmer's office. It's literally right. if the sun is out or not out. It is. It is. <laughs> Hello. Which but, apparently but isn't that sort of... It, it doesn't really make sense to me because if it's sunny, shouldn't that suggest the weather is improving and we're on our way out of winter? Maybe it's like saying that rain on your wedding day is good luck. Like... You're just like, it sucks, so we got to give you I something guess. to look Or that, to. like, oh, it's cloudy today. That means we're getting the bad weather out of the way, so we're going to have an early spring. 
We are thinking too much about this. It rained on my wedding day, and I'm coming up on Aww. my 30th anniversary. So there you go. There you go. We so have gone way too long, and we thank you for sticking with us. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. We'll be back Friday, wrapping up a week of news on Today in Ohio. 